Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I had a bit of a thought that I'd like to run past you for a measure of interest. Way back in Larry's time with the podcast, there would be special content. Lights Out with Sylvia Schultz, you might remember, and Tour of the Abattoir. I liked them, but also thought that it'd be best that the short fiction podcast feature short fiction exclusively, or nearly exclusively. I continue to hold that opinion that if you're listening to a regular episode of Tales to Terrify, the majority of the content in the episode should be fiction. However, I did like Lights Out, and I did like Tour of the Abattoir. Sylvia Schultz still has Lights Out as her own podcast, for those of you who miss it. What I'm asking for your feedback to be would be, if we had special episodes in addition to our standard ones, what would you think would be interesting? Personally, my answer would be some sort interviews with authors like Philip Oldham had managed to wrangle for us some time ago, and also interviews with some of our regular narrators. Who are they? What are their interests beyond their bios that we read? How do they produce what they create? What are their dreams, and what's next for them? When I was a listener, and then in my early days as a narrator, I'd have absolutely loved to have heard a narrator explain their process for recording and tips for making a clean, engaging recording. And I think that it'd also be great for a bit of a better understanding of how our podcast is made. The last two weeks, I've been encouraging you to leave reviews on iTunes, and I've looked over some of the reviews from years past. 
There have been a few that I feel like presume that Tales to Terrify has an office, a recording studio, and we sit around in the morning, meeting, drinking coffee, and talking about what sort of things we're going to do with our week. Like maybe I give Ira Glass a friendly nod in the hallway and talk about the weather with Sarah Koenig in the elevator. For those of you that don't know, I've never personally met any of Tales of Terrify's contributors in the flesh, so to speak, or editorial staff either. I'm recording right now in my wife's walk-in closet and hoping that the landscaping crew hired by the Homeowners Association doesn't bring their weed eaters any closer to my place until I'm done recording. Anyway, I've got away from my request for you. What sort of extras beyond the fiction would you like to have as special extra episodes? And if we get silence, we'll interpret that as things are fine, they are, and I'll put this idea back in the drawer for a while. Let's hear some stories. Warm you up, we have a short one to begin our evening. Robin Hooson is a writer from Nottingham, England. His work has previously appeared on Daily Science Fiction and An Eye to the Telescope. Find him on Twitter at Reliant underscore Robin. Here comes Robin Hooson's The Hungry Year. It was a hungry year. We children slept in a crooked house, the roof beaten low by the rain. In the early days, grown-ups would stand shivering on guard by the door, and there were sometimes screams in the forest. There were fewer screams now, and fewer grown-ups. The village was surrounded by a wall made of sharpened stakes, which leaned outwards. We spent our days hanging round the gate, waiting for the hunters to come home. Mother watched us, her face growing thin as she ran out of ways to stretch the last of the grain a little bit further. We've got more mouths than spoonfuls, she said. She was long past watching what she told us. When the hunters came, she ran to the gate with the rest of us and stopped and fell silent with the rest of us to let them through. They shuffled in, their heads low their ponies limping. There's nothing left, Hans Peter said. He was a tough, stringy man with mud ground into the lines on his face. They'd picked the forest clean for miles. Well then, Mother said. She had a little axe she used for chopping wood, and she sent one of us to fetch it. She was not really our mother, and the hunters were not really hunters, just the only people left. We helped Mother with the messy work, and then with the cooking, our mouths filling up with spit at the rising smells. The hunters stood around and mourned the loss of their ponies while their stomachs grumbled. That night, we ate and ate until our bellies were tight, and then we lay about on the cookhouse floor, falling asleep and squabbling in turns. The grown-ups ate when we were finished, picking their way between us to fill up their bowls. It's murder, Hans Peter said, as he shoveled down chunks of wet meat. Don't be daft, said Mother. Murder for us. If we go out on foot, then they can track us. They'll smell us coming. They'll smell you coming, another man said, and the rest of them laughed. You laugh, Hans Peter said. You won't laugh when you're dead. Stay here and starve then, Mother said. The laughter died until one man belched, a great loud echo from the cave of his belly. 
We children fell around and clutched at each other. We laughed ourselves empty until the little ones cried and the older ones started to pinch and punch. Mother packed us off, but we couldn't sleep. The laughter bubbled back out and we bounced up in bed. The joke was we knew Hans Peter was right. The dead didn't laugh. They came back again and walked in the forest. Soon the meat was all gone. There was nothing else for it, the hunters said. They went back out through the gates with heavy feet, pulling their wooden cart behind them. They came back again within the week with Hans Peter in the cart, gray-faced and groaning. They brought nothing else. Mother helped them to lift him into the cookhouse and lay him out. He won't live, she said when she looked beneath his cloak. Then you'll do what you have to do, the hunters said. They gathered up their gear and headed out again. Hans Peter looked diminished like a tree blown down. We took it in turns to watch him and to help wash the red from his wounds. Mother kept her axe on hand. He was slow about dying, and by the end he was no longer Hans Peter, just a colorless thing with rattling breath built on a framework of bones. Mother had to chop his head off, or he'll be up again by nightfall. He was always a stubborn sort. She pursed her lips at us and then sent one of us to fetch a mop and another to get a bucket. Afterwards, we ran out to the yard and we all mimed chopping. We picked up sticks and chopped each other. The smell of meat started to rise from the cookhouse and it drove us to a frenzy. The smaller children got pushed down in the mud and we chopped at them, breathlessly laughing and baring our teeth. Mother set the pot in the middle of us, and we attacked it with our hands. The meat tasted gray, like it had come off a man who'd been dead for days, but we didn't care. Mother ate the last bit of bread while she watched us, chewing it for a long time and swallowing slowly. She never had a bite of meat. It was all for us. You've got growing up to do yet, she said. But grown-ups never seemed to do anything except die, so we didn't want that. That night we were fat and full and slept like puppies all in a heap. But the next day the hunger returned. It was worse than before, as though the meat had eaten us and used up all the goodness from our bodies. The young ones wailed and licked the clean pot. Get off, Mother said, or I'll put you in there. She sent us out to play, and we shoved and clawed at each other. The hollowness inside us bit and burned. One small boy fell to the ground, and we set upon him. Mother came among us to break us up. Little monsters, she told us, not without love. We lurked in the corners, our mouths full of spit. We found her axe. We swung it at each other with whoops and screams. Mother screamed too and ran between us. We clutched at her skirts and started pulling. Some of the little ones bit. Our hands got wet and the hot copper smell went straight to the pit of our stomachs. The little ones fetched the pot, but we never put her in it. Our hunger was a living thing with a stomach and teeth. Again, we slept full and woke up hollow. We hung around the gate 
and waited for the hunters. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was Robin Hooson's The Hungry Year, as read by Matthew Staten. Matthew Staten lives in Chicago and spends his time recording and mixing bands, playing guitar in his own band, and arguing with Rancid the Cat. He would love to narrate books or podcasts for you. Contact him at myvoiceinmyhead at gmail.com, and should be a link to his email address in the show notes as well. Thank you, Matthew. Up next, we have one from Icy Sedgwick. Icy Sedgwick is a writer and blogger based in the northeast of England. She writes dark fantasy and gothic horror and was once described as J.K. Rowling meets Tim Burton. You can find her fiction at www.icysedgwick.com and follow her on Twitter at Icy Sedgwick. If you'd like more of her strange tales, head to her website for a free collection. Taking us to another dimension, Icy Sedgwick's The Dead House. None of the other nurses will venture into the ground-floor corridor of the East Wing at night. Not for all the jewels in the Prince Regent's storehouse, they say. Even Martin, the gruff old porter, avoids the corridor, although he claims it's because the chill in that part of the building plays havoc with his joints. Everyone else says it has more to do with the conversion of a disused ward into a new morgue, which everyone calls... The Dead House. But surely, the Dead House is a good thing, I used to ask. It is good that we can determine the true cause of their death. I thought of my own father, whose death under suspicious circumstances could have been investigated and his murderers brought to account. Nonsense, girl! can't keep the dead from their burial and then be surprised when they walk abroad? Matron would reply. I don't understand such ideas, and I would have thought a woman of usual good sense and intelligence, such as Matron, would have dismissed them herself. But in my three months at the hospital, 
I have learned not to disagree or question, matron. It is true. My only experience of the dreaded corridor has been during the day, when light floods the passage through the windows that line the outside wall. But that's beside the point. It is only a morgue and a corridor. How bad can they really be by night? In December, my first night shift arrives. At first, the work is no different to usual, as the patients do not respect the chiming clock. They wander the corridors or call for help at any time of the night or day. Yet at a quarter to midnight, matron asks me to visit a patient in the east wing. There are different routes through the hospital, but this is my chance to see exactly what everyone is so afraid of, and a sort of mad curiosity propels me. I half run through the labyrinth of the ground floor until I reach the corridor that everyone else dreads. As I turn the corner into the passage, I still can't see why everyone so pointedly avoids this part of the hospital. Moonlight streams through the windows, casting shadows of the frames across the opposite wall. It is so peaceful. No one is here to moan or cry for help. Faint voices come from somewhere to my right, no doubt from beyond the wall. But I assume they belong to those working in the dead house. No one ever speaks of the morticians, and I wonder what their opinion of this corridor is. They must surely know its reputation, yet they work there all the same. What are they like, spending so much of their time around the dead? I'm halfway along the corridor when a knock sounds behind me. I turn around, expecting to see one of the infirm patients struggling with a cane. This has happened before on many occasions and I always tend to their needs and return them to their bed. Yet there's no one there. I shrug and continue along the corridor. It runs the length of most of this wing, and it's longer than I remember it being during the day. It does not take this many steps at noon. Another knock comes from behind me, and then another. I turn around, and still there's no one there. More knocks. It sounds as though someone raps on the wall. I'm level with the doors to the dead house. But the knocks do not come from inside. They are in the corridor, with me. Unease grows in my chest, and I start walking again, this time a little faster than before. This time the knocks are harder and more insistent and closer. They are following me along the corridor. I speed up, close to a brisk trot, and the knocks increase to match my pace. I half consider going back to the dead house, thinking some human companionship may settle my nerves. But I do not want the morticians to think me simple or easily swayed by the folk tales of others. I have a job to do, and I hurry towards the door at the end of the corridor. The knocks accompany me, and I resist all urges to look behind me. Surely there's nothing there. And if I had time to investigate, there would inevitably be a rational explanation. The world is a place of reason and science. This is merely a phenomenon of the latter. I must continue attending to my duties. The door stands before me, and I reach out to grasp the handle. Another knock sounds, this time from the other side of the door. I squeal and stare at the knob, 
expecting to see it turn. I stand rooted to the spot for what feels like hours. There is a church across the fields on this side of the building, and its clock heralds midnight with a chiming bell. The witching hour is at hand. The sound, halfway between a chime and a knell, breaks the spell. Someone, or something, knocks on the door from the other side. I run back along the corridor before the decision is completely made, and I reach the dead house. Even if they think me a simpleton for asking, I am determined to question the morticians on their understanding of the knocks in this corridor. Their knowledge of science is so much more advanced than mine, after all. They investigate the secrets of life and death, and there is little they do not know. Knocking pursues me along the corridor, and a second set of raps begins at the other end, rushing towards me until I am caught between the sounds outside the morgue. I open the door and slip inside before my nerves can fail me. I confess that I have never set foot inside a morgue before. How can I have done so when this is my first nursing post in a city hospital and the dead house is a new invention? Yet, even with my lack of experience, I know I am not where I want to be. This is not the dead house. And I realise with a chill that I may not be in the hospital any more. A vaulted room lies before me, the green bloom of moss clinging to grey stone. Its ribbed ceiling and smell of age reminds me of the crypt of St Anne's, the small parish church where I played with my sisters as a child. We cared little for the rotting coffins. There are no caskets here, just bare walls and no windows. Unlit torches hang in wall brackets and flickering shadows dance across the deeply pitted floor. I cannot see any source of illumination or indeed anything to cast the shades that wheel and turn. Hello? I call a greeting, though I know that there are no morticians here. I just want to hear a human voice, even if it is my own. I turn back to the doors and fall backwards in fright as a young man now stands between me and the way out of this place. He wears a fine frock coat of deep grey velvet that reminds me of smoke in a breeze and a top hat of a black so deep it hurts my eyes to look at it. Spectacles rest on his nose, their round black lenses obscuring his eyes. I estimate he is perhaps twenty-five and his broad smile provokes an unsettling combination of pleasure and dread in my stomach. Excuse me, sir, I must return to the hospital. Must you, indeed? And why is that, my dear lady? The young man bows deeply, though I cannot help thinking he is insulting me somehow. Matron will wonder where I am. She sent you on an errand? The young man moves away from the door, and I cannot help following his progress further into the strange room. She did. Then I wonder at your venturing in here if you're otherwise occupied. I scowl at him. He has a point. But I cannot tell him about the knocking. I don't even know who he is. If you don't mind me asking, who are you, and what are you doing in the dead house?'
I know I'm not in the dead house, but it seems the only question to ask. Who am I? Well, who are any of us, really? Which of us gives our true name? And who among us allows others to know the real us? He laughs, amused by his own wit, although I cannot understand what he's getting at. Excuse me? Never mind me, dear lady. In answer to your second question, I am not in your dead house. No, indeed, you are in mine. The shock must register upon my face, because he swoops forward and takes hold of my hands. He peers into my eyes as if appraising me for illness. His fingers are like ice in my grasp, yet I cannot pull myself free. He repulses and enchants me at the same time. If it were not an inappropriate reference, I would compare him to the operations that I have seen the surgeons perform. There is a grim beauty to their grisly machinations from which I cannot avert my gaze. Your dead house, sir? Indeed, dear. Come, let me show you around. Before I can protest, he leads me further into the vaulted room, which turns out to be a corridor. A distinct chill hangs in the air, and I am left with the impression that we are somewhere below ground. What is this place? I told you. This is my dead house. But we are the only ones here. I have yet to hear or see anyone beside ourselves. Ha! How little you know, my dear lady. The young man will not be pressed further and skips ahead, his fingers still entwined with mine. Our speed gives the impression of flight along the corridor, yet my mind rails against the assumption. How could we move faster than a run without breaking into a swift pace? I wish to know where I am. I try to pull my hand free and do my best to dig in my heels. I manage neither, but the young man stops all the same. I apologise, little one. You do not like this space? I frown, and without warning he places his hand over my eyes. His skin is like ice, yet it also smells cold, damp with the cloying scent of the grave. A second later he removes his hand, and the vaulted corridor has gone. It is replaced with a vast meadow, tall wildflowers casting explosions of colour against the grass. A breeze ruffles their heads, though I can feel nothing on my skin. Clouds scud across the blue sky that arcs above us, though something feels wrong. No birdsong fills the air, and the sun's rays bend no warmth. It is as though I'm walking in a painting, beautiful yet unreal. I expect to run my hands through the flowers and smear the colours. Are we still in your dead house? Indeed we are. Inside or outside, it's all the same to me. Space is space, after all. The young man waves his hand around, gesturing to the meadow which stretches as far as I can see, as if this somehow answers my question. My dead house, that is, the dead house I was looking for, is a busy place, 
Morticians work to ascertain why people have died, if it is not immediately obvious. There are always cadavers, and I feel sure there must be equipment. And there are the morticians themselves. I do not end my sentence, sure that he knows what I would like to ask. You want to know why I call this place my dead house, when it so little resembles your own. The previous good humour drains from his expression, and his face is sketched in sharp, hard lines. For the first time, I'm glad I cannot see his eyes behind his impenetrable spectacles. I don't imagine I would like what I find there. Exactly. You're clearly very proud of your dead house, and it is very impressive. I just wanted you to help me understand it better. I sincerely hope my flattery sounds genuine, and he must detect a note of real curiosity in it, for he laughs, and softness returns to his face. He is both handsome in his looks and repulsive in his very air of wrongness. Yet there is something addictive about his laugh, as though it could chase away melancholy and conjure genies. I am a mortician of sorts, a mortician. <laughs> and a musician. I too investigate the dead, and I lead them on such a merry dance. He demonstrates a little jig, but his grin reminds me of the macabre woodcuts that my particularly morbid aunt would always bring out whenever I paid a visit. There is something of the goblin about him. I asked this earlier, and you didn't answer my question. But I think I've been exceptionally patient, particularly when I have no idea where I am and why I'm not in the hospital any more. Exactly who are you? I narrow my eyes and peer at him, as if this may strip away his facade and allow me to see who or what he really is. Many of my fellow nurses would have fainted clean away by now, but I fancy myself to be of hardier stock. Besides, this jaunt through a world that cannot possibly be real is still preferable to scrubbing bedpans. I go by many names, my dearest one. In fact, I have so many I cannot even remember which one was the first. But all you need to worry with at present is that you are in my dead house, and I am the closest I think you will get to encountering a mortician. He turns and skips away from me, the wild flowers bowing to provide him with a clear path. They spring back up behind him, leaving me to push my way through. They leave no pollen or fallen petals on my skirts, and I conclude that if I were to sniff one, I would smell nothing. I pinch the head from what I believe to be a poppy and slip it into my pocket. "'determined to examine it more closely when I return to the hospital. "'That is, if I return to the hospital. "'If this is a dead house, then where are the dead?' "'I call after him, hoping that he can hear me above the abysmal tune he has begun to whistle. "'They are all around you, my love,' he calls over his shoulder to me, "'and pauses to allow me to catch up. "'I cannot see anything.' The young man frowns again, 
and places his hand over my eyes. This time I reach up and my fingers fasten around his own, but the sensation is too unpleasant and I let out a small whimper. The young man chuckles and removes his hand, disentangling himself from my grasp. He appears as repulsed by my touch as I am by his. The meadow is replaced by a lofty ballroom, its walls lined with mirrors. Candles nestle within the chandeliers, crystal droplets reflecting tiny flames as if the ceiling were crawling with fireflies. We are not alone. The ballroom is filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women, all wearing elegant frock coats or magnificent dresses. The women wear their powdered wigs sculpted into fantastic forms, while the men wear more subtle wigs of delicate curls. I recognise this sort of garb from an earlier decade. These people look magnificent, but they are ever so slightly out of date. They all wear masks, and their dead eyes peer towards me. Do not pretend that this is also your dead house! I cannot stop myself from admonishing the young man, now dressed in a black frock coat, tricorner hat and breeches. His spectacles have been replaced by a mask, yet I still cannot see his eyes. But of course it is. And you wanted to see the dead. Here they are. Well, some of them. I couldn't possibly fit all of them in here. The young man snaps his fingers, and somewhere within the room... A string quartet bursts into life. The crush of people surrounding me loses interest, and I find myself among dancing couples, too intent on intricate footwork to notice a young woman in a nurse's uniform. I dip and dodge to weave through the dancers and pursue the young man. I am tired of his finery, and the scenes to which he would have me bear witness. I wish to return to work. I find him standing beside a grand fireplace, in conversation with a young woman who bears an uncanny resemblance to the late wife of the hospital's patron. I tell him that I wish to leave. Leave? But you only just got here, my lovely one. He pours syrup onto his words. But I am resolute. I am very grateful for the time you have spent with me, and I have seen some fascinating things, but I really should be getting back to work. He looks at me, long and hard, and I can see a raised eyebrow above his mask. He taps his chin with a gloved finger, and I know he has already resolved himself to allow me to leave. He wishes merely to prolong the suspense. There is one who would speak with you first. If it's all the same with you, I'd like to go back to work. Matron will string me up for this as it is. Then what will a few more moments cost? He moves away in his jaunty way and I follow him. I do not see that I particularly have a choice in the matter. He has no intention of sending me on my way until he has had his fun. A woman dancing beneath the largest of the chandeliers drops her fan and whirls away before I can stop her. I stoop and pick it up, adding it to the flower in my pocket. Surely these will be proof of my absence. 
and something to investigate once my shift has ended. The young man stops so abruptly that I walk into him, and the weight of his glare almost crushes me. He swiftly recollects himself and stands aside so that I may see this mysterious person who wishes to speak to me. It is my father. Unlike the others, tall and elegant in their eternity, my father's skin is mottled, his eyes watery and blank, and the scent of the grave clings to his tattered burial suit. He looks at me, but there is no spark of recognition, no exclamation of joy. He merely stares. Revulsion sends shudders through me, and my stomach heaves. It is too much for my mind. I have been able to comprehend the ceaseless corridor, the painted meadow, and the grand ballroom as being figments of an imagination, not necessarily mine, but clearly someone's. But this is beyond my ken. All of the questions I had about my father's death are swallowed by confusion and sadness. Grief and despair collide, and tears spring to my eyes. Without speaking a word, I turn and flee, plunging across the room as fast as I can go. The dancers part for me, allowing me past. I dare not look at them, fearing that they will have taken on the same appearance as my father. The illusion has cracked, and I no longer want to see. I reach the double doors at the far end of the room. They are the same as the doors that lead into the dead house in the hospital. I grasp the handle and turn, but the door does not give. I rattle the knob and release a string of profanities that might curl the toes of the most seaworthy sailor. I glance in the mirror and see the dancers continuing their macabre dance. Their reflections remain glorious. The young man appears at my side no longer in his finery, but clad once more in the outfit he wore when we first met. The ballroom disappears, replaced by the vaulted room in which I first encountered him. You were not pleased to see your father. Would you have been, to see a loved one so decrepit? I have never had parents, so I couldn't possibly imagine. I assume you want to leave now. I glare at him, with all of the hatred and anger that I can muster. But he merely laughs off my abhorrence and leans against the doorframe. Why can I not open the door? This door only opens one way. You may enter through it, but you cannot leave, except on one very special occasion. And what's that? Halloween? I spit at his feet, convinced he is as possessed by morbid superstition as the idiots that I work with. Not at all. You heard the knocking, but you did not ask the right question before you came in here. And what question is that? Oh, you've heard it a thousand times, I expect. Knock, knock. Who's there? I mumble my reply, astonished that I have been outwitted by a tedious joke. 
Indeed. The young man makes a show of removing a silver pocket watch from his waistcoat and checking the time. I fear he will grow bored with me before I can find out how to leave this place. Am I dead? Not really, no. You're not alive, but you're not dead. I don't understand. I'm getting so tired of your riddles and half-truths. Anger clenches my hand into a fist, and I slam the door behind me. The pain blossoms, and the tears that earlier filled my eyes finally spill free. The young man looks alarmed and hands me a handkerchief. An elaborate skull is embroidered upon one corner. I dab at my eyes, grateful that at least my tears are real, but the motif does not reassure me. The dead house of which you speak is an in-between place. The dead are not truly dead until they are buried, but nor are they alive. My dead house operates along the same lines, and the boundary is not so permanent. My door swings both ways, as it were. He rests a hand upon my shoulder, but I am too upset to recoil. His touch is oddly comforting, even if his presence continues to unsettle me. It does? So how do I get back? Keep knocking. When someone asks the right question, you can go. With that, he is gone. He takes with him the vaulted room and leaves me sitting on a beach. The doors remain, halfway between the sea and the sand dunes. And I rest against them, enjoying their solidity. The sky is a washed-out grey, full of the promise of an evening storm, and twisted driftwood is scattered across the sand. I recognise the beach, having played on it every afternoon during my childhood. No wind lifts my hair, and the air does not smell of salt. But I'm sure I shall be happy enough here. I remain seated for a little while longer, lost in my memories, until I remember what the young man said. I pull myself up and stand at the door. I make a fist and knock. Once, twice, three times. As many times as it takes to get an answer. That was Icy Sedgwick's The Dead House, as read by Margaret Essex from Australia. Thank you, Margaret. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes. Our show was produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.